on the job with Francis Leach and Sally Rugg. On the job, the podcast all about making your working life better. My name is Francis Leach. And my name is Sally Rugg. Thank you so much for listening to our delightful little podcast. We're happy you're here. Hello, Sally. <laughs> How's your week been? Good. Francis and I have the sillies this morning for people who are listening. I don't know if you can tell. We're both giggly. <laughs> I'm very well, Francis. I've had a very busy week. Nothing much to report from the cats or the weather, but... I did watch a program last night on ABC iView, navigated to my favourite section of ABC iView, the news and current affairs <laughs> section, and then I scrolled down, scrolled down because I was like, oh, I finished this platform, scrolled down, and I found this show called Retro Focus, and it's like looking at news stories of the past. Have you heard of this show? No, but I instantly love the idea. So it's the idea you look at the news story and how it was reported and then maybe do an analysis of what was driving the reportage or the perspective or the themes, the way things were reported? It's literally just archival footage. Like it's the news of an event. Like they just, anyway. So I watched the Harold Holt episode. And so the fact that an Australian Prime Minister disappeared into the ocean and was never seen again. Like, we all know that. Like, I obviously know that that's a thing. And sometimes if I think on it for more than a few seconds, I'm like, God, that's wild. But I have never really thought about it too much. But I, w- I watched the episode where it, it's there's no commentary, there's no analysis. It's literally just they show from the moment the news breaks, that bulletin, and then the follow-up story, and then on location down on the beach with the divers. It was extraordinary. I mean, obviously a terrible thing to have happened, but the news footage, very interesting. And it, yeah, it just got me thinking about how Harold Holt disappeared into the ocean. And we don't really talk about that that much anymore. We don't, other, unless the conspiracy theorists are listening and believe he got on board a Chinese submarine and uh, spent the rest of his days living quietly in Peking, which is one of the con- early conspiracy theories doing the rounds. But w- I love the idea of just watching it purely as it was because you also get a sense of the times, of what, what was the reporter wearing, what sort of cars were being driven, all that sort of real first-person reportage is primary source of what was going on at the time. Yeah, it was amazing. Another really extraordinary thing about it was apparently back in the day when Harold Holt went missing, there were no women. It's so weird. Like there was just no women anywhere, it would seem. They didn't have jobs in the news. They didn't have jobs uh, in politics or as divers or as police officers or as people interviewed on the street. Really remarkable that we've come so far in such a short amount of time. (laughs) We've still got a hell of a long way to go. And that's part of what we're going to be doing on today's podcast with New South Wales Labor Senator, Senator Jenny McAllister, Sally. Yeah, and I'm really excited to speak to the Senator for a number of reasons, but mostly because she is one of my favourite characters from my favourite television show, Senate Estimates. So, yeah, I'm just really looking forward to asking some sort of behind-the-scenes questions on how they prepare for shooting and <laughs> and what it's like to be in, in the action 
in the room. Well, ever since she won the role on uh, on Senate Estimates, uh, she's also become a New <laughs> South Wales Labor Senator uh, in uh, the Federal Parliament and had, uh, I guess, carriage for the Labor Party of the Respect at Work report and seeing the legislation that was passed in relation to that as, as uh, unsatisfying as it was because so many of the recommendations in Kate Jenkins' report did not end up in legislation and there's still plenty of work to do on that. And she's been a great advocate for the uh, pay of domestic violence leave for women who are needing to leave violent and abusive relationships. So why don't we catch up with her, Senator Jenny McAllister. On the job, the podcast all about making your working life better. And on today's pod, Sally, we're joined by Senator Jenny McAllister, who's taken some time out of her busy schedule to have a chat with us on the job. Senator, welcome. How are you? I'm very well. Thank you, Francis. How are you? I'm really well. Now, we always start with a question with a first-time guest. To get to know you, we ask, what was your first job and what was the worst job or the toughest job that you've ever had to do? (laughs) My very first job was at Tandy Electronics, which at the time, I don't think they were really expecting a female applicant. Only older listeners will know about Tandy Electronics, but it was a, a very kind of dorky kind of shop for people who were very into electronics (laughs) and computing. And um, I went to the interview. There was a young man there and they hired the young man. But then I think over time they started to reflect on it and they got me in for casual work. And I actually learned an enormous amount about electronics, uh, about working with male customers because it was nearly all male customers and (gasps) just about work in general. I don't, I I think that your first job is an absolute shock to the system for most people. It requires a kind of discipline and focus that you're really not asked to bring to task until you you get your first job. I I think for a lot of young people, it's um, it's a pretty big deal. I feel like starting your first job, but also the first day of every new job subsequently, I have always found completely exhausting, like even if it's just four hours on the first day of your new job. And I wonder if it's like, you know, when you do an exercise and it's a completely new muscle and you're sort of like, what? I didn't didn't know I even had that muscle. It hurts. Like, I wonder if it's a bit like that, but your first day of your first ever job is just like that sort of shock to the system of being like, what is this? Absolutely. It's, It's like learning to drive. There's all these things that ultimately become unconscious and you become quite competent at all sorts of things. But on day one, you're not competent at any of them and it's a big learning curve. What was the worst one you've ever had to do or the toughest and dirtiest job that you've had? I worked in a hospitality job that was run by some very, very active members of the Liberal Party and um, I cut myself very badly in the kitchen and had to go off to the hospital get it stitched up and fixed. And when I got to work uh, the next week, I got in all sorts of trouble because I had disclosed to the hospital that I'd um, hurt myself at work. And I was instructed that uh, should this ever occur again, I was to tell the hospital that I'd been injured at home. There was to be no record of injuries in the workplace. Uh, So a very early lesson about the challenges of working in a non-union shop. And was that to get out of paying workers compensation? Do you think they weren't insured or? I actually don't know. It's quite a long time ago. I just remember being quite confused about it. And I, of course, immediately agreed to this request because, you know, you're 15 years old and. Are they still, are these publicans still there? I think you should rock up like in your senator 
uniform. <laughs> you know, the one with the cape and the, no, just rock up and be like, hello, see this scar? <laughs> yeah, that sounds like a terrible job and quite different to the one you're in now. Um, what's it like being in the Senate? I love it and it's an incredible privilege. Part of the job that I like the most is getting out and about and talking to people. People are really generous in telling you their personal stories, their own experiences, often in the hope that it will make things better for other people. Sometimes in my particular area for the prevention of family violence and so sometimes those stories are actually quite tough. But it's an enormous privilege to have people trust you enough to disclose some of the things that they do and I really love that ability to show people that politics means something, that it can mean change and it can mean that your own personal experience translates into something that's better for a book. And that's sort of the work you've been doing in more recent times with the report into Respect at Work, uh, which was tabled eventually this year after sitting on the shelf for over a year, was very much driven by that, isn't it, uh, about that that sense of justice and participation and safety, not only in the workplace but in, in the wider community as a consequence. What did you learn from that experience about how far we still have to come in order to actually achieve that goal of people feeling that they're included, they're safe and they belong? Well, the findings from Kate Jenkins' report were pretty shocking. So 40% of women report that they've been sexually harassed at work at some point in the last five years. And that obviously comes with an enormous human cost. Most of those people never report. They're too scared, afraid of the consequences, not confident that they'll be supported. The economic cost of that is estimated to be about $3.5 billion a year in the economy. Comes out of lost productivity, turnover, people leaving jobs. But I think at a human level, it just tells you so much about the experiences of women at work and some of the reasons that women are still not being paid equally or valued equally or promoted equally in the workplace. Because when you're confronted by this kind of behaviour, it's massively disruptive to your experience of of day-to-day work. And I think quite logically, you can conclude it's pretty debilitating for the women who experience it. Men too, by the way, but the the majority of these issues are are for women. 40%. I mean, that is an extraordinary number. You know, I am one of those 40% and I imagine 40% of our listeners would be one of those 40% if my math serves me well. And still hearing that number is so extraordinary for many women and the people who love them around Australia, I have found one of the most difficult and upsetting things of the last year is sort of watching these really big issues of gender inequality, harassment and violence in the workplace just like seem to be not understood by our Prime Minister and perhaps not understood by his government. And I found myself earlier this year almost getting upset with myself that I even cared. <laughs> like, so like, why do I care what Scott Morrison thinks about this? Like, why do I care what, I don't even like this government. But it, it did, it really got under my skin. 
What's it been like for you being in that building with arguably some of the most powerful people in the country right now, being the government, and that feeling of like, I don't think they get it. I don't think they're taking it seriously. Are you seeing that up close? And what are you and the other folks in parliament sort of doing to counter that? I think they don't get it. I think one thing that's happened is the government ignored this for eight years. Then there was eventually just this outraged outpouring of anger from women right across the country. The March for Justice was incredible. I think the government's inability to craft an effective response to it reflects the fact that they just have, most of them, have never really thought about these issues at all. Scott Morrison basically admitted that. He admitted that he was learning some really new and disturbing things. For most women around Australia, it was like, where have you been the last 20 years? It was incredible that he had not given any thought to these matters whatsoever in the past. I feel quite optimistic about it. I've been pretty active in women's politics and thinking about this question since I was a teenager. And I have never seen so much public attention paid to these questions. And I feel like this is a moment that we can seize. I feel very strongly that parliaments are being pushed by their communities to do something constructive. And on our side of politics, we are really ready to get in there and start making some changes that would make a a, a lot of difference to women at home and at work. What are some of those changes that still need to be made? I know there'd be a long laundry list of those things, but, you know, day one of a new Albanese Labor government, what are the things you'd be knocking on his door and saying, okay, here's the things that didn't get done out of the Respect at Work report and we need these done now? With regard to Respect at Work, we're committed to implementing all of the 55 recommendations. Some of the big ones are these. Incredibly, Kate Jenkins recommended that... uh, substantive equality between men and women be one of the objectives of the Act. This was not implemented by the government. Uh, The government instead chose this sort of mealy-mouthed objective which was about providing equality of opportunity in as far as is practicable. Surely our Act could say that in relation to sex discrimination, our objective is equality between men and women. It's pretty straightforward. The other really big one is creating a positive duty for employers. At the moment, the system relies on individuals coming forward and making a complaint. A positive duty would make it the employer's job to make sure that they create a safe workplace for men and for women. I think that's a no-brainer and it was at the heart of Kate Jenkins' report and it was the thing that was so obviously missing in the legislative response. My sense is that men around the country in workplaces in every, you know, city and and region and town are crying out for guidance. You know, if they don't have a fully equal workplace, they look around their workplace and think there isn't gender equality here. Either I'm a manager or I'm a junior or, you know, whatever it is. My sense is that the vast, vast majority of men want to do the right thing. They want guidance. I'm currently facilitating a course on gender equality in the workplace. One of the questions we constantly get asked is, the women are leaving my company, how can I make it safer for them? Like, how how can we stop attrition? Well, yeah, I hired three people in a row and they were all men, but they were, you know, they were just the most competent. So from where I'm sitting, it really feels to me like, 
this isn't a women's issue at all. This is something that everybody's feeling really passionate about. And it's interesting to me that Morrison's government and Morrison's response has sort of pitted women's issues in one corner and sort of like, but what about the men? When from where I'm sitting, that this is what men want as well. I think that's right. There's an enormous amount of goodwill out there and it's one of the real opportunities that we have is to bring people together. We will be a better and happier society if everybody's able to achieve to their full full potential. I remember Scott Morrison saying a couple of years ago on International Women's Day that he wanted men, uh, women to rise but not at the expense of men. <laughs> It's such a misunderstanding of the opportunity that's in front of us. What's that theory where it's like a rising tide will win the boat race? Senator, you've been instrumental in advocating for paid leave for victim survivors of domestic abuse and domestic violence. I'm sure all of our listeners sort of appreciate why paid leave in this specific time of crisis is important, but could you share with us why family violence and domestic abuse particularly is sort of like a unique scenario that needs this kind of support? Leaving violence is time-consuming and expensive. Uh, If you think about it just in the most practical way, a woman leaving a violent relationship may need to find a new place to live. She may need to enrol children in a new school. She may need to attend a legal appointment. Uh, She may need to attend a medical appointment. There's just all of these things that will probably need to be done during work hours and will probably take more time than is available to that woman through um, her existing um, recreational leave or sick leave. Paid leave is really important because without it, it sometimes means that women to do those tasks will actually just disengage with work. If they've got to choose, they might end up just leaving their job. And we know that having a job is really protective. It helps people during to cope with an experience of violence, to have social connection and financial resources, but it also helps with recovering from a violent relationship. And so paid DV leave just makes sense. It allows a woman to stay connected to work and start that critical process of recovery. And it's also mm. that element of, uh, of you know, financial punishment and financial coercion that women face often as well, that, uh, uh, you know, coercive men and uh, those who are involved in the, that wicked practice of coercive control pull the tight the purse strings and women aren't able to make choices for themselves because they don't have access to the resources. Mm. Yes, and there is some ac- evidence that, having a job is protective against violence, partly for those reasons, because a woman who has a job has her own financial resources and a sense of her own financial independence and may have greater confidence in pushing back on those kinds of behaviours and ultimately rejecting them. Women's employment is intimately connected, in my view, to responding to broader trends of violence. Uh, Women who are financially vulnerable are, I think, more vulnerable to to perpetrators. It's really important that we keep the economic dimensions of violence in view as we think about the solutions that are available to us. And for women who are unemployed, what are the services available for them, just for anybody listening along who know someone who might need this sort of support. If a woman is unemployed, what help can they receive? Anyone who is facing violence, I really encourage them to go and find some support. 1800RESPECT is an 
will be a starting point for finding someone who can help you. And even if you are not working, there is support available through Centrelink. There are other kinds of organisations that will help a woman get set up and start again. And the thing that we know about victim survivors is that they are just so brave. They cope all the time, every day with immensely difficult circumstances. What I'm interested in is getting a Labor government elected so that we can really prioritise supporting those brave women to start their lives again. They really deserve our support. They're so courageous and there's so much more that we could be doing for them. That's really great advice. And also I think for anyone listening, another great first port of call is seeing your GP. I have friends who have gone to see their GP and, you know, whether it's a regular GP or just like a GP who can give another referral, your doctors are stocked up in all those information about those services in your communities as well. A person in my life went and saw their GP who was able to put them in touch with a community lawyer who was able to put them in touch with an organisation who organised house move. You know, like there's a network of people who are there to help you. That's so true, Sally. I think one of the things we could think about is making sure that we've got a, a much broader group of people providing frontline services who understand domestic violence and are aware of the options to help people who are experiencing it. We don't need every Centrelink worker or every person working in the Department of Immigration to be an expert in domestic violence, but we do want government employees to be aware of it and aware of the options when they come across people who they think need help. Senator, structural change is one of the keys to this as well, uh, making sure that the the ways that we govern our institutions and those who hold the levers of power change so that other people get opportunities. And one of those processes might be quotas to encourage organisations or compel organisations to actually have a different gender mix at the decision table within different layers of whatever they're doing. Do you support quotas? And, you know, for those who say, oh, it's all about merit, what do you say back to that and why that doesn't cut it as an argument? (laughs) Well, we've got this living experiment, actually, between the Labor Party and the Liberal Party. I joined the Labor Party around 1993. And in 1994, we adopted an affirmative action quota for women. At that time, the Liberals and the Labor Party had about the same proportion of women in our parliaments. Today, the Liberals are still stuck on around 27% of their parliamentarians as women, whereas Labor is just tipping to reach 50% it shows what a difference it's made. The Liberals refuse to adopt quotas. In the end, in the Labor Party, it's just meant that good women have been given a chance. They've been nurtured and brought forward. And it's not just, it doesn't just show in our parliamentary ranks in the backbench. It's meant that we've generated a pipeline of women who've played incredibly senior roles. People, of course, like Julia Kinnard, but also Penny Wong, Tanya Plibersek, Linda Burney, all of these very familiar women that have become household names for Australians. I think that what it tells us too is that the idea of merit never really stacked up in politics. We had a generation of men who kept selecting people who looked a bit like them to contest seats and to play a role in our organisation. And when we really pressed them and they went looking, they found this whole generation of equally competent, amazing women. To hark back to our earlier conversation I think it's such an example of how the rising tide can lift all the boats. It's produced a very high quality of representation in the Labor Party because we are uh, 
drawing from 100% of the population, not just a, a small part of it. I love quotas. I think they're really important and useful. And um, you, you just said it yourself, Senator, that they're important because instead of closing yourself off to a vast proportion of the population, you're sort of opening yourself up to everybody. And the reason we have a 50% quota for women is because women are more or less 50% of the population. And I wonder if, what if not only parliament, but businesses and, you know, powerful institutions, like what if there were quotas for the institutions of power that represent us to reflect the demographics of the population. So, you know, if there's if 10% of people are queer, I think it's more like 20%, but say let's go with 20, let's go with 10%. Should there be a quota that like, well, we've, we we want to have that much representation in parliament if um, you know, one in however many people have a disability, it's like, well, like we have to make sure we've got enough people with disabilities. Um in positions of power, whether it's parliament, you know, in the courts, uh, in big business. What's your view on that sort of model that I have just made up? Representation really matters. It matters in the parliament, but it also matters in the public service and in the judiciary and in business. And I think we have a long way to go in improving representation in all of those domains. Some of our biggest companies are having very active conversations about diversity. They're talking about ethnic and racial diversity. They're talking about class. Some of them, I think, are talking about uh, sexual orientation. I think they're immensely important conversations to be having. We do need to have a political, business, judicial leadership that looks like the community. Quotas are not the only tool that we can use to get there. The first step, I think, is having a proper conversation about it and also having some data. In many instances, we're only just now seeing businesses, parliaments or public sectors starting to quantify the extent to which they are or are not representative. Going and getting that information is the first step to having an informed conversation about what we need to do next. We're heading to a federal election, Senator. What do you think the key issues are going to be? Where's this going to be won and lost when the rubber hits the road and the Prime Minister goes to see the Governor-General and and calls the election sometime, between, any time between now and this time next year, but probably sooner rather than later? What's your sense of what's going to matter most? I think that the Australian people are looking at the Prime Minister and really wondering what he stands for. We've been through an extended period where the Prime Minister has bungled the vaccine rollout, had a very hands-off approach to managing the pandemic and instead preferred a a quite aggressive style of politics where he sought to pick pick fights with state and territory leaders. My sense is that as we come out of the worst phases of the pandemic, people will be looking for a hopeful and optimistic future. I think people are focused on their economic circumstances. Communities like the place I grew up in, in northern New South Wales, really wondering what the future is for jobs in those communities. My sense is that it will all be about finding meaningful, secure, stable employment as we come through the worst phases of the pandemic. And do you know when it's going to be? Can you tell us? Do you have the inside... Sadly, my superpowers do not allow me to uh, discover uh, when Scott Morrison will call the election. Um, Perhaps before the end of this year, perhaps at the beginning of next 
year. I don't know. We have to be ready. But we really do need a change of government. We need a change of government to deal with women's issues. We need a Labor government that will deal with climate change. We need a different approach to work that acknowledges that communities need secure, well-paid jobs. I am ready for a change. I think the community is ready for a change. We've just got to go all, all go out there and fight for it. Now, Senator, do you enjoy Senate estimates anywhere near as much as Sally? Because I don't know if you I know this or not, Sally. Sally Rugg, is, her idea of a good time is not to watch Netflix, it's to watch estimates. And she considers you like the sort of, uh, you know, like the, uh, I don't know, like the, the superstar of estimates, your top billing. So do you, you obviously enjoy it as much as Sally? It's a very long day, the estimates day. The viewing experience, of course, does not start until 9am, but it doesn't conclude until 11pm. And that is a long time to be sitting in the same seat in the same room, (laughs) usually a room without windows. Uh, So they are very, very long days, but they're pretty satisfying. If you think the job of an opposition is to hold a government to account, there's no better forum than estimates. You actually have government ministers in front of you, senior bureaucrats in front of you, there's only so long they can obfuscate about what is actually going on. In the end, they are going to have to tell you. And it's really important. It's a really important part of the democratic process. So I get a lot of rewards out of being part of it, but they are very long days. Well, we appreciate you for putting putting in those hours. I have this theory that you know, there's like poll after poll that shows that like trust in politicians and trust in the media, you know, trust in institutions is falling and all the rest of it. I have this theory that if we just sort of streamed Senate estimates, like if the ABC added an extra channel and just when estimates was on, you could stream it. I know that I'm a particularly unusual like class of political weirdo, but I just think that it's like... I, I feel very reassured watching these, like, processes of, of accountability and, like, even though there is a bit of theatre to it, but I think that th- the theatre is also good. Like, it's like I just want people to watch it with me. <laughs> we, can, we can start a WhatsApp group and we'll chat about chat about it and yeah I I just think it's like a really cool part of the democratic process and that more people should watch Senate Estimates. (laughs) All right will you start your WhatsApp group Sally and you tell me how many people you get on it (laughs) and then we'll have this conversation about whether mandatory viewing is required. (laughs) You do know that that Sally does actually have a strategy here because she actually wants to build this up until a point that she can have an award ceremony called the Estes and an award like a trophy (laughs) for the best Senate Estimates Performer of the Year, which you would be very much in the running for, by the way. So Mm. it might be in your interest to help her build the Estes. Like you've heard of the Oscars, right? It's like the Oscars. I am starting to think that this is a very niche area of interest for you, Sally. (laughs) Yeah, I think so too. But, like, if there are any ABC producers listening, call me. (laughs) We can can develop this together. Um, Senator, thank you so much for um, coming on our podcast today. It's been lovely to speak to you. Um, Thank you for the work you're doing um, around uh, family violence and domestic abuse Um, and, you know, and for Senate Estimates, which is... Great. <laughs> <laughs> Sally, thank you so much. And Francis, thank you also. Oh, thank you, Senator. <laughs> thank you for that. This is On the Job with Francis Leach and Sally Rudd. 
Senator Jenny McAllister there, star of uh, Senate Estimates, uh, future winner of the very first inaugural ESTI uh, and uh, and doing great work in the Federal Senate for the Labor Party. <laughs> I don't want to well, give her the prize straight away. Like I think we really do need to make sure that ESTIs are transparent and that there's like a voting component and I wouldn't write off um, some other contenders. I've really enjoyed um, Liberal Senator Jared Rennick. What does Jared, bring to, the, what does Jared <laughs> bring to the table that you like? Um, he did some really funny questioning around, um, oh, I can't even remember what it was. He's just, look, he is genre-defying in the type of questions he asks. He's Ellen Pease from Queensland. Um, yeah, genre-defying, devi- breathtaking, never been seen before. <laughs> um, a real laugh-a-minute guy. I think Senator Larissa Waters does a great job at estimates. I think Senator uh, Rex Patrick does a really good job at Senate estimates. Um, a hot field. Murray Watts. There's a lot of contenders for the for the big prize, and I wouldn't, yeah, I wouldn't put my money on anybody just yet. Oh, it's so much, so exciting to watch this outplay itself over the next little while. Who emerges as the true star? Thank you. You're the true star of this podcast. You win win the prize for this week. Thank you very much again, Sally. You can find Sally at Sally Rug on the socials. I'm at Saint Frankly. Uh, don't forget to give us a review on your podcast app. Write a little review. Give us some stars. It helps people find the information, the inspiration spread the word about the pod and also in the show notes we will have uh, some details below if you want to be in contact with some services that could help you if you're in a situation that you feel you need some help in relation to domestic violence and abuse so we'll have those in the notes below so make sure you check that out Sally we'll catch you next week on the job bye bye